0: just want to preach the text, and as I do, I want to love every single person who is listening, even though we're speaking of the severity of God. I believe, just as Charles Simeon, a pastor in the 1800s, said, to warn people of danger is the kindest act of love. So let us this morning sit under the kindest act of love for God Himself to address us in His Word about His severity and about His mercy. Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest Day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Father, we need your help. We need your divine assistance to enable us to see these words and to cherish them and not kick against them, to receive them and not reject them. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. How is your judgment wonderful? How is the reality of hell wonderful? God, teach us that this morning. God, I pray for those in this room who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Maybe they know you as a true historical figure. Maybe they actually believe that those events happened, but those events have no meaning to their life because they do not receive you as Lord, as Master, as Savior, and as the greatest treasure of their souls. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would wake up, that they would see the peril that lies before them, that they would see... The judgment that they rightly deserve and that they would see that that judgment has been poured out on Jesus such that they do not have to incur your wrath. Father, I pray that you would grow affections for Jesus, that all of us in this room would love him more as we see what he did and what he went through to save us. Father, it is not a coincidence that we are here in Revelation 14 on this Sunday. It's not a coincidence that anyone is in this room. It's not a coincidence that anyone is live streaming and tuning in from wherever they are in the world. You have us here for a reason. Sober our minds. Grip our affections. Do a work in our church because of our time in your word this morning that we would be able to look back on years from now and see that really set us on a new trajectory of taking the gospel seriously and of loving Christ with all of our being. Holy Spirit, show us Christ. Glorify Jesus in these moments. We pray in the name of our risen Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 14 gives us three angels with three messages. They are preaching three sermons that we are going to look at this morning. So angel number one, message number one is in verses six through seven. And the angel simply is giving an invitation to anyone to worship God. That's the first angel's message. The message of the first angel in verses six through seven is simply an invitation to to anyone to worship God. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. So referring to the point in the sky where the sun reaches its highest point in, uh, at noonday, visible to all, seen by all, heard by all, and he has an eternal gospel. So this is a gospel that will never fail. It will never pass away. It will never cease to exist. And it's the gospel. It's the good news. And specifically in chapter 14, it's the good news that the coming king is going to conquer. Evil will not reign. That's the goodness of this good news. But it expands to an invitation to all to receive the greatest news of all, which is you do not have to be God's enemy any longer. Literally in the Greek, he has an eternal gospel to gospelize. The word for preach is the same word for gospel. It's evangelistic, evangelical, it's euangelion, which just means good news that you're taking to proclaim to other people. So he has an eternal evangelion to evangelize with. And look at who he's talking to. He's talking to every single person who lives on the earth. Notice it's different than the phrase, those who dwell on the earth. That's a different phrase because that referred to strictly non-believers. Anyone who was Uh, in cahoots with the Antichrist, following the Antichrist. This is not that phrase. This is to all who live on the earth. And to back up the reality that this is a true gospel call to anyone, it includes every single people group that Jesus died to save, to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, to every people. Whenever we see that formula, we're hearing the preciousness of the gospel going to every single people group. And he cries out with a loud voice, Fear God. This is a command. It's in the imperative, but it's also a command to be invited to enjoy who God is. Fear God. It's an invitation to live out a command. It's first and foremost an invitation to live out a command as opposed to fearing the Antichrist. Don't be afraid of the Antichrist. Don't worry about him. Worry about who God is as your enemy against you. Fear him. This is, as Solomon says, the beginning of wisdom. This is also, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the, the command that when everything is summed up in life, when we know we're going to die, there's really only two things we have to remember. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's all we have to do to live this life the way we're supposed to live it and to live in light of eternity. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments. To fear God requires self-humiliation and self-surrender to him. It would be living out what God said, uh, what Jesus Christ said, who is God on earth in Luke chapter 12 and 13. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Fear him. Don't fear the Antichrist who can kill your body, and brutally so. Don't fear him. Fear God who can kill both body and then soul in hell. Fear him. Give him glory. That's the second command here. Give him glory. Some of your Bibles might say, worship him. Declare that he is better than anything in the world. Find your satisfaction in him. Say that he's better than all that the world has to offer. And some might say, man, this angel sounds a little bit pushy. (laughs) Why so pushy here? Well, he tells us, because the hour of his judgment has come. Very interesting, in Revelation so far, we have never seen the word judgment. Never seen that word. It's always been wrath, because it's always been God's wrath being poured out on the earth. But now, as we're coming to the very end, God is going to judge on the scales. He's going to, as a judge would do over uh, some criminal, to say, are you innocent or guilty? He's going to do that with every single human being. The hour of his judgment has come. His wrath has been poured out, and it is still being poured out, but he's going to take the world. He's going to divide the world up. He's going to look at each individual person and judge you individually. So you, individually, worship him. Worship him. He made the heavens. He made the earth. He made the sea. He made the springs of water. Worship him. It would seem that the angel's warnings would be decently superfluous. Judgment's coming. Look at the wrath that's already happened. Why do we need to be told that judgment is coming? By this point, the whole world had been experiencing absolutely devastating wrath, and they know that it's from the hand of God. Chapter 6, they say, this is the wrath of the Lamb. And yet they refuse to repent over and over and over again, and yet God in his infinite mercy is giving them yet again another chance anyone. Be aware of the judgment that is about to come and turn now. That's what he's saying. Turn now. It's very interesting because Matthew 24 verse 14, Jesus says that the gospel will be proclaimed in the whole earth and then the end will come. I think that's what's happening here. The gospel was proclaimed by the two witnesses. The gospel has been proclaimed by any believer who's been living during this time of great tribulation. The 144,000 who have been sealed to never be able to be killed by the Antichrist and other believers who are there, they're going out, they're proclaiming this euangelion, this gospel of good news. And finally, the angel says, let me proclaim it and the end will come. And the end will come. Sadly, most people reject this grace, and my question is why? Why do most people reject the gracious offer of Jesus? You do not have to go through this judgment. Why do most people reject it? Just write down John 3.19. John 3.19 gives us the answer. Why do people reject Jesus? Why do people not turn away from the judgment that they are about to receive and turn to Jesus who is graciously offering them pardon and peace John three nineteen says, because they love the darkness rather than the light. They love their sin. They love autonomy. They love having their own control over their own lives, over their own agendas, over their own will. They don't want to live out what Galatians says of being crucified with Christ, so it's no longer them who lives. They love their sin. That's why we use affection as a, a word all the time in our church services. We're talking about affection, love, desire. We're talking about treasuring, cherishing, because it's all about what do you love the most. If you love darkness and you don't love the light, then you're going to hear this warning and say, it's okay, I love my my darkness, I love my sin. That's why we pray that the love of God would be grown in your hearts, that you would love Jesus. Now, everything we're going to read today in Revelation 14, is going to happen in the future. It's not happening right now, though the gospel is going forth. This specific angel preaching the gospel, that's happening later. That's not going to happen now. But I believe it's all applicable for us today. Because John 3 tells us, Jesus says, if you are walking in darkness, then the wrath of God abides on you now. Judgment's going to happen soon, and his wrath already remains on you. So though we're going to be speaking about future events, again, every time we look at the future events, we see application for us today. And so the first angel's message, though it is a future message, a future event, it absolutely has application for everyone who's listening here. God has made a way for the judgment that you and I so richly deserve to be poured out on Jesus so we don't have to be judged. God's made a way. And just as the angel is going to give an invitation to anyone on the earth, anyone who would receive this message So too, the the word of God is being proclaimed to you. Anyone who would receive, anyone who would turn from sin, anyone who would trust in Jesus, this is a message that you can hold dear and cling to today. The second message from the second angel is assurance that opposition to God will not stand. This is verse eight. The first angel preaches an invitation for anyone to worship God. Find your joy in him, find your satisfaction in him. The second angel shows up very quickly, And he gives assurance that opposition to God will not stand. He gives assurance that opposition to God will not stand. Just as the first angel ended with a message of the reality of God being the one who made everything, it looks like the God who made everything has lost everything. It looks like the Antichrist is winning, the false prophets winning, the devils winning. It looks like they have established a kingdom that God has totally lost the created order that he made. And the Angels, uh, the second angel's message is very clear. God will ultimately step in and defeat evil. Evil will not last. Evil will not stand. Verse 8, the second angel says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her, of her immorality. The first angel preached the gospel, but if you reject the gospel, you're going to receive what the second angel is speaking of. The declaration of the fall of Babylon means that most everyone will reject the first angel's message. Now, again, the destruction of Babylon is a future event, even from here. So when the angel says Babylon has fallen, it's a, a word that you are becoming familiar with in the Greek. It's called a proleptic aorist. It's speaking of a future event as if it were past because it's as good as done. Our favorite proleptic aorist in the Bible is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Those whom God justified, he also called, he calls, he justified, he sanctifies. And those whom he sanctified, he has glorified. We are not yet glorified, but it's such a promised, assured event. We can be so confident of it that Paul speaks of the future event that has yet to happen as if it were a past event. It's a future event spoken in the past tense. That's what's happening here. Babylon, as we're going to see in later chapters, is going to be established and then will fall at the very end of the tribulation. We're not at the end of the tribulation. We're not at the end of Daniel's 70th week. We're not at the end of these seven years. As we said last time we were together in chapter 14, this is all just visions of looking ahead of saying, do not be afraid, do not worry. Jesus is going to come back and establish the millennial kingdom. You don't have to fear. And here he's saying as well, Babylon's not going to stand. It looks like God is losing, but he's not going to lose because Babylon will not stand. Babylon, just it absolutely seems out of left field that Babylon shows up. We don't know what Babylon is. We haven't given reference to Babylon yet. All of a sudden, we've got this city called Babylon, and we're supposed to be excited that it's fallen. Well, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about what Babylon is as we get into later chapters in Revelation. But if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, that's really when Babel became a city. Genesis chapter 11 is the the Tower of Babel. You remember the origin of idolatry. They built the tower to get to heaven high enough to not have a flood kill them again. Remember, this is after the the flood, the uh, flood of Noah in chapters 6 through 9. So let's build a tower high enough that we won't die from a flood again because God killed everyone and we don't like God. And let's also build a tower high enough to get into heaven so that we can find the God who sent the flood and kill that God. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. They want to get into heaven to kill God. And so as they're creating that tower, it says explicitly that they desire to create a people and a name for themselves. God desires to be worshiped. God desires to be honored. We don't like God. We want to make our own city, our own people, our own nation. We want to make ourselves God. Let's destroy God and make ourselves God. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, Babel or Babylon becomes a symbolic imagery of people defying God, of idol worship defying God. Sometimes it's an actual place. Remember Nebuchadnezzar establishes a city called Babylon and he calls it Babylon the Great. And here we have Babylon the Great is fallen. So there's really two interpretations as to what this Babylon in the future is, either symbolic or literal. Those are really our two categories. Either this is symbolic Babylon, which just, again, it's a city that's going to be raised up to stand against God in every way, shape, or form. And most people would say that if it is symbolic, it's probably Rome 2.0 that's going to be established as the epicenter of the Antichrist's business and operations, and this symbolic Babylon just is fighting against everything that God stands for. Some people would see it as literal Babylon. The Babylon in the Middle East is going to be uncovered, discovered, raised up. They're going to build on the foundation, the, the, the ruins of Babylon over there, build their foundations there, and they're going to establish a literal Babylon again. Either way you take it, it's Babylon 2.0. It's Babylon of old, resurrected to defy God. That's what this word means. Here are the Antichrist and the false prophet teaming up together and bringing about this city that opposes God in every way, shape, or form. Babylon is the archetype of the culture opposed to God. And that's why the angel says they're fallen because Babylon has made all the nations in the world drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Drunk with the corruption of the false uh, religions that they've been promoting. And the immorality and idolatry that they promote. Isaiah chapter 21 verse 9 describes Babylon being fallen. It's actually a quotation, Uh, this verse in verse 8 is a quotation from Isaiah 21, verse 9. The judgment is going to come upon Babylon and then the entirety of the earth. Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 7 through 8 say that the nations will drink of the wine of Babylon because her immorality and her idolatry is going to be so rampant in the world that everyone's going to come and participate in it. First angel says, here's a a message of the gospel to anyone. Anyone, please bow the knee to Christ. Worship him, fear him, give him glory. And if you don't do that in this time period, in the end times, then you're going to align yourself with Babylon. You're going to say no to God and align yourself with the the world system that is against God. So the second angel says, if you don't receive Jesus as your king and you worship the Antichrist as your king, you're going to fall. You won't be able to stand. Anyone who opposes Jesus will ultimately fall. But that's corporately. Babylon, corporately. It's not individually. And that's why there has to be a third angel with a third message. And it's just simply this. The third message from the third angel is that anyone refusing to submit to God will be punished. Anyone refusing to submit to God will be punished. This is verses 9 through 12. The temporal punishments during Daniel's 70th week are giving way to an ultimate sentence that has no time restrictions on it. And the corporate issue of Babylon has now broken out into individual people, personal people, specific names, specific people and faces that are represented in verses 9 through 11 of rejecting Jesus and thus being punished for all of eternity. Then another angel, verse 9, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone, so again, the gospel call went to anyone, it's your choice. Will you choose to submit to Jesus or will you choose to submit to the Antichrist? And if anyone submits to the Antichrist to worship the beast, to worship the image of the beast and receives the mark of the beast on his forehead or on his hand, then you could put in the middle of between nine and 10, then he will have drunk of the wine of the passions of the immorality of Babylon. He will have been being drunk by Babylon and therefore he's also going to get drunk on something else. He will also, that's why the also is there in verse 10. He will also drink of something else. He's been drinking of something. He's been drinking of his own governance over himself, his own passions, his own lusts, his own desires. He's been drinking of those things and aligning himself with the Antichrist and with Babylon. And God says, I'm going to give him something else to drink. And it's going to be a cup filled with the wrath of God filled with the wrath of God. They get drunk with sin and God gives them a wine that is even stronger than their sin. The angel says that it's, it's undiluted, it's unmixed, full in its strength. This is, normally back then you would, you would pour out very strong alcohol into a glass, into a cup, into some uh, cup that you would drink from, and then you'd put a little bit of water in to dilute it. And here God says, "I'm not diluting it at all." This reminds me of when I was younger; my parents would always buy those little minute-made—I don't know—canisters. You'd pull the thing off, pop the top, and it'd just be this slushy gush of lemonade or orange juice concentrate. Remember that stuff? You put it back into the pitcher stir it up, put water in it, stir it up, put a cup of water in it, stir it up, put a cup of water in it, stir it up. And me, being completely impatient, I'd say, no, 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 I just, I want it now. I'm thirsty, I want lemonade now, I want orange juice now. So just one cup, stir it up, drink it. And just the strongest, I remember one time taking a spoon and just dipping out a little bit of it, just getting a little bit and trying to taste it. Orange juice and lemonade from concentrate is not good. (laughs) You have to put water in it. That's the imagery here. The imagery here is that there is no dilution. There is no mixing to spread it out, to even it out, to make it a little bit more palatable. This is just the complete, full, undiluted wrath of God. There's no trace of mercy, no trace of grace, no trace of compassion. And it will be put in the cup of God's anger and whoever rejects Jesus will be tormented with fire and brimstone. That word for tormented is literally a word. You can see it elsewhere in the New Testament for tortured. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Again, this is a proclamation for those in that Seven year period in that tribulation through the great tribulation. This is a proclamation for those receiving the mark of the beast, but the reality is true for anyone who denies Jesus, who goes against Jesus, who does not submit to Jesus. So, in this message from the third angel, I want to give you five realities about hell. Five realities about hell. Number one, re- the reality of hell is that it is eternal. Hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. Verse 11 says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is the strongest expression that you could possibly make in, in the Greek language. This is the strongest expression of judgment and time in eternality that you could possibly make. Literally, it's unto the ages upon the ages. If you wanted to say it will never stop and it will go on forever, this is the way to say it. There's no stronger way in Greek to say it. It goes on forever. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 describes the eternality of judgment. Romans chapter 2 verses 3 through 9 describe it as well. Hell is eternal. It goes on forever. Therefore, hell is not purgative. It's punitive. It's not purging you of sin. Many people think that You go to hell and you have sin cleansed out of you and you're made fit to go to heaven. That's an idea of purgatory that's not in the Bible. The smoke of their torment goes on forever and ever, perpetually. It never ends. They have no rest. Remember the rich man in Luke 16, the rich man in Lazarus, the rich man who dies and goes to hell. He prays for rest. Give me rest, but he's not given any rest. There's never a pause, there's never a break. Matthew 3, verse 12, Mark 9, verse 48, much of Luke 16 with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and Matthew 25, verse 49, including other places, are all locations where Jesus in the Gospels describes hell as a place of never-ending torment. It's eternal. Jesus said more about hell than he ever did about heaven, and as he describes hell, he describes it as a place that never ceases. It's a place of ongoing weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's eternal second reality of hell is that it involves the suffering of the people who are there. Hell involves the suffering of the people who are there. Again, John uses the word tormented, which literally is a word for tortured. People are suffering, and they're suffering consciously. They're not asleep. They're very aware of what's going on. And I actually think there's an element in Luke 16 that those in hell know what they've rejected, they know what they're missing. Hell involves the suffering of the people who are there. Number three, a third reality is that hell is conscious. Hell is conscious. It's not annihilationism. There, there's a, a word in theology that would mean that people who reject Jesus die and they, their souls go to a place where they're, they're punished, they're judged, and then they just cease to exist. But again, that doesn't hold up to what the scriptures say. Jesus says it's a place of ongoing torment, of weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. It's not unconscious, it's conscious. There are some people in the camp of evangelicalism, some very well-known people, some uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who would say things like this. I I want you to hear a, a piece of a commentary from a very, very good brother, John Stott, one of his Most famous books, The Cross of Christ, is just an absolutely astounding work. But listen to what he says about hell. Emotionally, he says, I find that that concept of eternal conscious torment absolutely intolerable. And I do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings altogether or cracking under the strain. But you notice what he said. Emotionally, I can't can't hold that view. My friends, emotionally none of us can hold that view. We cannot read over these verses and say, "Yeah, we know hell exists." We cannot get used to the concept of hell. You might have friends, loved ones, relatives who you know have rejected Jesus Christ and they have died. You cannot read these verses without tears in your eyes. Emotionally, all of us should find hell absolutely revolting. But that doesn't make it any less real. Biblically, it's absolutely true that hell is a very real place. And people go there when they die. The fourth reality of hell is that it is God-inflicted suffering. Hell is God-inflicted suffering. So it is eternal. It involves the suffering of the people who are there. It is conscious. It's not annihilationism. Number four, it is God-inflicted suffering. That's why the Bible calls it God's wrath. It's God-judging. Even at the end of this passage, this, the fire and brimstone in the end of verse 10 in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hell would not be hell without the presence of God being there to administer punishment and judgment. As we alluded to earlier in Luke chapter 13, don't fear those who can kill the body alone. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul. God does the punishing. God does the judging. And that leads to the fifth, uh, really a question in my mind, as I see that hell is eternal and I see that people are suffering there and it's conscious and it goes on forever and God is the one doing it, I ask the question, is that fair? It doesn't feel fair. It feels very harsh. Here's my problem. This is the problem that I had when I was in 10th grade. I knew that If I'm going to believe the Bible, I'm going to take the Bible at face value, literally for what it says, and the Bible speaks literally about these realities, and so I realized I have to figure out my understanding of hell and either submit to it or not, and my biggest hurdle with submitting to hell was the formula I had in my mind that if I live to 70 or 80 years in this life, and I die and I reject Jesus, I spend eternity in hell, that does not seem fair. If it's 70 or 80 years in this life sinning, it should be 70 and 80 years in the next life, being punished, and then done. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem equal. And as I plumbed the depths of not only God's word, but other godly men and women who wrestled with this issue, I understood that hell is absolutely fair. It's righteous. It's just. God is righteous and just and fair And sending people to hell. No one will be in hell who does not deserve to be there. No one will be in hell who does not deserve to be there. Turn just really quickly to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll come back to the formula problem that I had growing up. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. They are actively rebelling against God. Then Romans chapter two, verse four. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's made a way for you to be saved, to not be judged. But, verse five, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're storing it up for yourself because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. You cease your stubbornness, you cease your unrepentant heart, you cling to Jesus and no more wrath. It's because of your stubbornness. So it's, it's all on you. And then Romans chapter three, verse five. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. So, he is asking the same question. Is God unrighteous for sending unrighteous people to hell? And the answer is no, because our unrighteousness vindicates him sending us there. My unrighteousness vindicates God's righteousness in sending me to hell if I reject him. Okay, I agree with that. I believe that those who I mean, simple analogy for us, right? You you break the law, you speed, you get a ticket. Nobody cries foul on that. I broke the law. I did what was wrong. I did what was wrong. Okay. But back to my formula. But hang on. Hell seems way too big of a punishment. If I speed, I get a ticket, I pay a fine, and I'm good to go. If I speed against God's law, I break God's law by speeding, by sinning for 70 to 80 years in this life, then I should get a ticket in the next life for sure. Yes, I agree with that, but it should be shorter, right? I think one of the most helpful people who aided me in wrestling through these things is Jonathan Edwards, who probably thought about heaven and hell more deeply than anybody I've ever read in, in a book by John Gerstner called Jonathan Edwards and the Afterlife. Edwards explained this dilemma for me. I'll read it slowly because there's some aspect of wordiness in this, but I think you'll hear it and it'll make sense. Edwards writes, The crime of one being despising and casting contempt on another is proportionately more or less heinous as he was under greater or less obligations to obey him. And therefore, if there be any being that we are under infinite obligation to love, honor, and obey then the contrary towards him must be infinitely faulty our obligation to love honor and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness honorableness and authority but god is a being infinitely lovely because he hath infinite excellency and infinite beauty so and here's the key sin against god being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of infinite punishment. The eternity of the punishment of the ungodly men, of ungodly men together, renders it infinite and therefore renders it no more than proportionable to the heinousness of what they're guilty of. In other words, the punishment doesn't just fit the crime. The punishment fits who the crime was committed against. And if we have sinned against an infinite God, then therefore our judgment is infinite as well. The length of our sin is not what makes the length of our suffering just. It's the height of our sin that makes the length of our suffering in hell just. It's the height of our sin measured by the dignity of the one that you're sinning against. And that dignity is an infinite dignity. Therefore our punishment is infinite. This is what we deserve. This is what we've earned. The wages of our sin is this punishment. So can I just ask you, do you know today that this is what you deserve? Or do you listen to this, hear this, and say, I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think I deserve that much punishment. That much punishment sounds a a little bit too far, a little bit too much. A.W. Tozer said, the man who seriously is convinced that he deserves to go to hell is not likely to go there. But the man who believes that he's worthy of heaven will certainly never enter that blessed place. What do you believe you deserve? Because the reality is, if you believe that you deserve heaven because of your merits, because of your goodness. Maybe you even came here to church thinking that showing up in a church building and singing songs to God makes me acceptable to God. You would never think it in those terms. You'd never frame it in those terms, but you think I did a good thing. It's a good thing for me to be here. I'm doing good things. I'm doing what God's asking me to do, and I'm doing them so that he'll love me, so that he'll accept me, so that he'll take me into heaven. No one's good enough. You have to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We've all been guilty of something. We've all felt guilt before. This is what we deserve. And here, in the absolute darkest place in theology, we see one of the most beautiful realities. Because this is what Jesus took for you and for me. Jesus took upon himself our judgment so that we would never have to experience hell. And because Jesus took this judgment for us, this shows us just how magnificent Jesus actually is. Our sin merits infinite, eternal punishment. Therefore, if Jesus can pay for that sin and rise from the dead and conquer it all and offer us forgiveness, then he is infinitely more amazing. The reality of who Jesus is, if you think hell is awful, and it is, if you think the The infinite punishment of eternal torment is awful, and it is. For Jesus to go, done, gone, removed, he has to be that much more infinitely valuable and amazing. And he is. Therefore, how infinitely valuable and worthy must be the glory of God if spurning it for lesser things merits everlasting torment. Our God is amazing. He swallowed death up in victory. He swallowed up our punishment. He said, it's finished. He drank the cup on the cross so that you and I would never have this cup to drink. We would only have the cup of the new covenant to drink and to drink it in full. Our passage doesn't end there. Verse 12, here then is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus knowing that the horrors of hell are real and that submitting to the beast in the end times will lead to this eternal punishment, enables believers, however difficult their death might be, enables them to persevere. They have zero desire to worship the beast. They're going to persevere because of the motivations of the horrors of hell. Notice, They persevere because they're saved. They don't do things to get saved. They're already saved, and therefore they're enabled to persevere. They don't work to earn their salvation, but since God has saved them, they get to work. The struggle with the beast provides these saints an opportunity to work out their salvation through perseverance. They know that it's better to be killed by the beast than to suffer eternal torment with him. And again, though you and I won't be in this category because these are future events that we will probably most likely not be living through, the reality is if they can persevere in the worst of circumstances, then you and I can persevere. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If they can make it and God can sustain them in those worst of times and circumstances, then God will sustain us as well. As one commentator says, no group of believers will face stronger assaults on their faith than Christians in the tribulation, and yet God preserves them and they will persevere. There is no stronger evidence that saving faith preserves and perseveres than the reality that the most tested believers in history will remain faithful and maintain their saving faith until the end. And we're seeing that reality today. We're seeing our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan at the face of certain death and and torture by the Taliban. They're saying, no, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We will not bow. These three angels provide three amazing messages, and we we could end there. But God doesn't end there. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven. If it's an angel, there's no reason why John wouldn't say an angel said, because he just told us three angels were speaking. So who is this voice? I know that it's speculation because we're not told. But I think the Father speaks because he sees his children going through the Great Tribulation, being persecuted, being tortured, being killed for their faith. And he says, John, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, From then on means in the great tribulation on. They're safe. They're at peace. They no longer have to work, have to strive, have to labor. They are free and at peace. But again, the reality of that day is applicable to us today. It's applicable to our brother, Brian. He is blessed because he died in the Lord and he is with the Lord. Our brother, John, is blessed because he died in the Lord and he is with the Lord And the Spirit affirms these things. The Spirit only speaks explicitly in this book of Revelation two times. Once is here, and the other is in uh, chapter 21, 22, towards the end of the book. So he only is going to speak twice. And he has to speak here because as the Father says, I am happy, and happy are those who die in the Lord. Happy are those who come safely home out of the great tribulation. They're happy, I'm happy, we're safe, we're home. The Spirit says yes. They're resting from their labors. They're resting from their exhaustion. Labors is just uh, working to the point of exhaustion. You can't even stand up anymore. And their deeds follow them. They get eternal rest and eternal reward. They get it all. Here's the direct opposite of the beast worshipers. The beast worshipers have no rest day and night. To be sure, those opposing God will not endure the labors or violent death caused by a saintly life because they're going to comply with the beast's demands. But beyond the grave, the story will be different. The saints will rest from their troubles and be rewarded. But at death, the troubles of those who worship the beast will only just have begun. Take the easy way out, worship the beast, and experience the afterlife in the hardest way imaginable. Go through the hardest life on earth, treasuring Christ, and you'll experience pure joy, pure bliss forevermore in the next life. It's far better to die at the hand of the beast than to have favor as his worshiper. And so they rest. They rest. Uh, Another way we could say it is death is gain for them. Death is gained because they get to rest. They're also rewarded. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. They're rewarded from all of their labors. And so the Spirit says yes. Again, the only other place he's going to speak is chapter 22, verse 17, where he's going to say, explicitly say words. But here he says yes. He affirms what the Father is saying. So what are we to do with this? I think it would be important to, to make One statement in conclusion to this this reality, the horrors of hell are terrifying and frightening, but here's what I want you to know, and here's what we need to know as a church. The horrors of hell and the devastation of eternal punishment cannot scare anyone into heaven. No one can get saved simply and only by being terrified of judgment. No one gets scared into heaven. Hell is powerless to produce what needs to be produced in order for us to be saved. There's some amazing examples of this in church history, and I want, I want to read you just one of them. Going back to Jonathan Edwards, his son-in-law, almost became a son-in-law, died before. He could be a son-in-law, uh, but David Brainerd, missionary to Native American people, he w- lived an amazing life before he died Uh, He's just an incredible, has an incredible biography that Jonathan Edwards wrote of him because he loved him so much. And I want to read just a few excerpts from David Brainerd's journal that Jonathan Edwards compiled. And I want you to listen to what surprised David Brainerd, because I think it will surprise you and me. As we come to the end of this sermon, as we come to the end of this section, we might think, well, our job is to go out into the world and to scare them with the reality of hell. And if we do our job to scare them, if we just terrify them, they'll get saved. I think the Bible would say that that's not true. And David Brainerd's experience says that's not true. He wrote on August 9th, 1745, after preaching to the Native Americans. He said this, quote, There were many tears among them while I was discoursing publicly, yet some were much affected with a few words spoken to them in a powerful manner, which caused the persons to cry out in anguish of soul. Okay, David, what were you preaching? You were preaching hell, right? He says, although I spoke not a word of terror to them, but on the contrary, I set before them the fullness and all sufficiency of Christ's merits and his willingness to save all that would come to him and thereupon pressed them to come without delay. Not a word of terror, not a word of hell, And in anguish of soul and with tears in their eyes, they cry out, save us. August 6th of the same year, a few days earlier, he writes, it was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender, melting invitations of the gospel, although there was not a word of terror spoken to them. November 30th, he preached a sermon to the Native Americans from Luke Chapter 16, verses 19 through 26, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus dies and goes to Abraham's bosom. Uh, The rich man dies, goes to hell in agony. Just one drop of water, please give me relief. And he said this, the word made powerful impressions upon many in the assembly, especially while I discoursed of the blessedness of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. This, I could perceive, affected them much more than when I spoke of the rich man's misery and torments, and thus it has seemed usual with them. They have almost always appeared much more affected with the comforting than the dreadful truths of God's word. And that which has distressed many of them under conviction is that they found that they lacked and could not obtain the happiness of the godly. It wasn't hell... That saved them. It wasn't the terrors of hell that saved them. You would rightly say, well, that's fine, but that's just a a human talking to people. That's not God's word. Is this found in God's word? I believe it is. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Jesus was sitting in a boat. He was teaching people on the land. He's exhausted, and he says, let's go out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They go out. He says, "Uh, let's let's catch some fish. They drop their nets. Uh, Before they do, Jesus says, let's catch fish. Let's enjoy some fish. I'm hungry. And they say, Master, we toiled all night. We took nothing. But at your word, we will do what you say. In essence, they're saying this. You're a carpenter. We're the pros at fishing. But okay, you're our master. We'll do what you you ask us to do. And you remember the end of the story, right? They can't even haul in the catch. It's so full that the nets are breaking as they're bringing in all the fish. It's just a gracious miracle in light of their uh, seeming unbelief of like, we've done this before, we're the pros, who are you? Okay, fine, we'll do it. And when they bring the fish into the boat, Simon Peter's reaction is astounding. He falls at the feet of Jesus, and he says, quote, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's the same thing that David Brainerd experienced with the Native Americans. Jesus performs a gracious miracle. And Peter sees that kindness, that grace, that purity, that holiness, that love, and is undone. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. David Brainerd preaches the gospel and the beauty of Christ and the loveliness of Christ. And upon hearing how amazing Jesus is, how glorious he is, how majestic he is, how lovely he is, the Native Americans weep and wail, we don't have him, we want him. Not a word of terror spoken. Fear of hell does not produce saving faith. It's a realization of not being holy like Jesus and not enjoying his holiness and loving him. Genuine spiritual gospel contrition or sorrow for sin is a genuine sorrow at not having holiness. But even there, we have to be careful because there's two ways to be sorrowful over not having holiness. You can either be sorrowful that you don't have holiness because a judge is telling you, because you don't have holiness, You're going to be sentenced to not have freedom to live in your unholiness. So, really, we're just sad that we've been punished and we're sad about the consequences and we're sad that we don't get to continue sinning. That's not genuine saving faith. Genuine salvation is when we say, Yes, I don't want to go to hell, but more than that, I don't want to lose out on my Savior. I want Him. I want Him more than I want anything in this world. And so your sorrow is a sorrow over losing him and not having him. It's not a fear of being punished. Yes, hell is a message that needs to be proclaimed because it's from the Bible. And yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It can set you on the right track. But fear over hell cannot save anyone. Delight in Jesus saves people. To cry over punishment that you might receive for your wrongdoing is no sign of hating wrongdoing. The only true sorrow for not having holiness comes from loving God more than you love your sin. It's not fearing your consequences. True remorse, true brokenness, true contrition at not having holiness is over not enjoying God, not finding your satisfaction in him and living off of that. You hate your sin because you realize every time you sin, you're saying, God, you're not enough. I want something else. That's why you hate it, not because of the consequences, not because you've been found out, but because you say, I've lived in something that rejects Jesus, and I know, I've tasted and I've seen that he's good, and now with my life, I've proclaimed, he's not enough for me. That's what breaks our hearts as believers. So when you're sorry for sin, just, I want want to plead with you, why are you sorry for sin? Are you sorry because of consequences? Are you sorry because of punishment? Or are you sorry because your sin has alienated you from the one that you love the most? And you realize, you realize now, and this is where we have to end, but you realize now, this is why we are constantly pleading with God to give us affections for Jesus. Because you will not know the pain of losing Christ You will not want more of Him unless your soul has first come to taste and see that the Lord is good and your soul has delighted in Him. So I I plead with you. If you're here this morning and you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you've delighted. You can look back on your past somewhere in the past and you can see I have loved Christ and I have known. I've known deep down inside that he is more satisfying than anything in this world. I know that to be a fact. And now you're starting to struggle to live in sin. You're starting to struggle with, I just don't want to be caught in sin. You're you're starting to struggle with, I just don't want the punishment of sin. Go back to your first love. Go back to where your heart said, I don't need anything other than him. I just want him. And I've been given him because of his work on the cross and the resurrection. And I don't need anything else. Go back there every second of every day. Proclaim the good news of the gospel to your souls. Don't let the fear of hell be the end point of your pursuit of repentance. Don't rest until you've gone beyond the fear of hell to the living waters and drink deeply of the glory of God, the love of God, the truth of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the justice of God, and the grace of God. Hell is powerless to produce what needs to be produced for salvation. It just scares people in the right direction, but it can't save them. So drink deeply of the one who can. Taste and see that the Lord is good today and that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Father, we thank you for your word that is just so rich. It's so magnificent. It just undoes our hearts to see that we've spurned and rejected you chasing after broken cisterns that can hold no water, we are undone because of our sin, not because of the consequences as terrifying as they may be. We don't want to just not go to hell. We cannot imagine an eternity separated from you. We love you. We want you. God, even our our brothers... Brian and John, who have gone before us, they lived out that legacy for us to see that you're better than life. You're not just to be used to play the get-out-of-hell-free card. You're better than anything. And therefore, we don't want to just cling to you so that we're served by you by getting out of hell. No, we want to cling to you because you are the fountain of living water that satisfies us deeper than anything in this world. Any sinful thing, any good thing that we could turn into an idol. You're better. Help us to hear that this morning. Help us to believe that this morning. You're better. And may we comfort each other with those words. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and I just want to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for our benediction this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choosing of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us, what kind of a reception that we had with you and how you turned to God from your idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. My prayer for you this morning is that if you are here and the fear of hell has made you think deeply about your eternal destiny, that you would not leave without talking to me, talk to Luke, talk to somebody here. But I pray that you would go beyond that, that you would genuinely be able to say, okay, what is it that I'm missing? Why is Jesus so amazing? Why is he truly delightful, better than anything in this world? So even though we have to tear down and we're going to go do a picnic, if you if you're here and you have questions and you truly do need to do business with God, don't don't worry about the chairs. Leave your chair. Come talk to me. Come talk to Luke. Come talk to somebody. And let's, let's speak together and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? If you can grab your chairs,